Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. My name is Brenda, and welcome to Horrifying History, where you will hear about the unexplained, paranormal, and supernatural happenings that has stained the pages of history. I love to travel. I love experiencing other cultures, eating new foods, and seeing new locations. I enjoy traveling to places with a lot of history. I love to learn about the people and the events that came before me, and how this changed the world I live in today. Sometimes, history isn't just history, though. Sometimes, that history is still alive in some form, and sometimes, you may end up seeing that history face-to-face. -face. Welcome to Episode 53, Top Haunted Locations on Earth. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. The Winchester Mystery House is an absolute architectural wonder and historical landmark that's located in San Jose, California. It was once the personal residence of Sarah Winchester, who was the widow of William Winchester and heiress to a large portion of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company fortune. She created what is considered to be one of the most unique and perhaps haunted houses on the planet. Sarah Lockwood Party was born to her father Leonard and his wife Sarah in 1839 in New Haven, Connecticut. Growing up, Sarah enjoyed the spoils of wealth since her father was a very successful carriage manufacturer and her mother was very popular in the upper crust of New Haven's high society. This placed young Sarah in an excellent position to marry an equally or even higher privileged man. By the time Sarah was of the age to get married, her family wanted to ensure that she would be taken care of in a way that she was accustomed to for the rest of her life. They found the perfect match for her to do this with, and his name was William Winchester. 
William was the only son of firearms manufacturer Oliver Winchester, and he was the heir to the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. This company had made a name for itself as one of the very first to mass-produce firearms that had the ability to fire multiple rounds without reloading. Their 1873 model is what made the company famous since it was wildly popular with settlers and used during the American-Indian Wars. Between these massive sales and an increasing popularity of their product, the Winchester family amassed a huge fortune, and it was this fortune that would finance what later would become Sarah's strange obsession. William and Sarah were married in September of 1862, and then William soon started working alongside his father as treasurer for his family's company. Soon afterwards, the couple welcomed a daughter named Annie to their family, but this is where the Winchester's luck started to turn. At 40 days old, little Annie would die from a rare disease that prevents a person from metabolizing protein. She died of malnutrition, and her parents were devastated. By most accounts, Sarah never fully recovered from her loss of her daughter. She started to become very distressed over the source of her wealth, believing that she and her husband were profiting from thousands of deaths. She couldn't cope with this and, to complicate things even further, William's father, he passed away in 1800. He left the company to his only son. A year after his father's death, William fell ill with tuberculosis. He died, leaving the company and fortune to his beloved Sarah. Now, Sarah was alone, but she was very, very rich. She inherited an approximate $20 million fortune, which would be equivalent to about $500 million today. I'll repeat, $500 million. She also had a 50% stake in the Winchester Arms Company, which left her with an additional income at the time of about $1,000 per day. In today's money, that would be about $26,000 a day. Now, even though Sarah chose not to take a position in her company, let's just say she was doing extremely well financially. The thing is, Sarah thought that this fortune was all blood money that was made from the deaths of thousands of people. She carried a lot of guilt because of this, so she started searching for ideas on how she could use it for good. In her search, Sarah reached out to a medium in Boston. She told the medium about her guilt about the victims killed by Winchester's guns and how she was unsure how to move forward. The medium told her that the reason she's having such bad luck was because she's being tormented by the spirits killed by those weapons. This would continue unless she found a way to appease the spirits. According to this medium, there was only one way to do this. Sarah had to move west and build a house for all the lost souls. Sarah immediately packed her bags and moved she didn't want to risk her internal damnation at the hands of angry spirits, so she moved as far west from New England as she could go, San Jose, California. In 1883, Sarah bought an unfinished farmhouse in Santa Clara Valley. Instead of hiring an architect to help with the design, Sarah enlisted a team of carpenters and told them to build directly onto the farmhouse. However, she saw fit. Now this team started building around the clock according to Sarah's directions. She would regularly visit spiritualists and mediums to get further direction, and according to local legend, the spiritualists and mediums would give further advice on how to appease the unhappy spirits throughout the build. Soon, the little farmhouse turned into a seven-story mansion, and Sarah, she didn't stop building. 
she never ceased construction and would always make new additions and adjustments for the sake of the ghosts. In an effort to confuse any spirit that hoped to contact her directly, Sarah had quite a few unusual things added to the house, like making staircases that ended abruptly, windows that opened into interior rooms, doorways that opened to a several-story drop, and hallways that appeared to go nowhere before circling back onto themselves. In addition to all this, she made some changes for herself. The mansion was filled with luxury fixtures, parquet flooring, crystal chandeliers, gilded doorways, and stained glass windows handcrafted by Louis Comfort Tiffany. This house also had the most advanced technology at the time that money could buy, with forced air central heating and that ever so fancy hot and cold running water. This house, with its human and ghost accessories and in its splendor, showed off Sarah's immense wealth. From the second Sarah moved to San Jose, she made quite the reputation for herself due to her obsession with the afterlife. She dealt with constant rumors that she was insane, or maybe she was herself possessed. Then, in September of 1922, Sarah passed away in her sleep. She left her fortune and her house to her secretary and niece, who sold the house at auction. Today, the Winchester House is a bustling tourist attraction drawing visitors from around the world due to its architectural strangeness, but that isn't the only reason that people visit. Many people go to try to get a glimpse of the spirits that Sarah thought were haunting her. Is the Winchester House haunted? Well, many people believe that this house is one of the most active sites in the United States today. A number of employees and visitors claim to have had spectral sightings. One ghost most often seen is of a man who is known as Clyde. Clyde was a man with a big mustache who was seen pushing a wheelbarrow into the basement or trying to repair the fireplace in the ballroom. Most often, staff become aware that another visitor ran into Clyde when they come over to tell them that they really enjoyed the actor wearing white overalls and the Victorian-style boater hat, but staff know they didn't hire any actors. Many other people experience tugs on their clothing when they walk through this house and hear footsteps when no one is in sight. The tales of the ghostly residents have brought a lot of unique visitors throughout the years. Famed escape artist Harry Houdini came to this house in 1924 to try to debunk the claims of what was happening in the house. He wasn't successful. Then came world-famous psychic Sylvia Brown and James Van Prague, who allegedly channeled Sarah during a seance. As recently as 2014, TV personality Zach Baggins and his Ghost Hunter team did an investigation on this site since this place is regularly on the most haunted lists around the world. If you want to see this amazing historical mansion for yourself, there are tours available, but you better be careful. If you're not, you too may become part of the group of spirits that's forever linked to the Winchester Mystery House. Venice is considered to be one of Italy's most picturesque cities. With its winding canals, striking architecture, and beautiful bridges, Venice is one of the most popular travel destinations in the world. 
What many visitors do not know is that located between Venice and Lido in the Venetian Lagoon, that there is an island called Pavglea. The island of Pavglea is the source of tall tales throughout the years, and it is this island that Italians claim is the most haunted island in the world. This small island is said to be so evil that you would struggle to find a local step foot on it. Fishermen, they won't fish nearby this area, and for many years this location has been off-limits to any visitor. So how did this island gain its current reputation as a location for evil? For all appearances, it looks normal, but this island has a very dark history and is said to be one of the most haunted locations in Europe. The picturesque Venetian Lagoon is actually home to 155 islands. Pavglea started its dark history when it housed Romans who escaped the Goth and Hun invasions during the 5th century. This island was one of the more defensible islands in the lagoon, and as Venice started to grow into a major power in the region, it became a very important defensive location. During the 14th century, a fort was built on the island to help establish an outpost that would destroy enemy ships that would try to reach the city of Venice. But things changed when the bubonic plague ravaged through Europe. It was quickly recognized that Pavglea could have another purpose. It became a quarantine site for plague victims as early as the 16th century. In addition to quarantining individuals, it was decided that this island would also become a gigantic mass grave for the bodies of the dead. Barges from Venice were hauled in, carrying dead plague victims to this island, while other ships would bring over the people exiled with the, even the most mildest of symptoms. Plague victims would often spend 40 days on this island waiting to see if they would die or if they would survive, and most of them, they would die. Venetians started to cremate thousands and thousands of bodies on Pavglea, leaving the ashy remains to lie wherever the wind took them. When the most deadly wave of the bubonic plague, which was the Black Death, hit Europe in 1348, Venice created what is considered to be the very first modern quarantine system. Venice started to detain ships and travelers who they suspected of carrying the Black Death for a period of 40 days, which is where the word quarantine itself comes from. Quarantine comes from the Italian word for 40, which is quattro. The quarantine, though, was not very effective in this situation, but it resulted in other areas adopting this practice and it went throughout the world. As the Black Death raged through Venice in 1348, it resulted in, believe it or not, over half of its citizens dying. As Venice was a hub for international trade, ships came from around the world to their ports and this made this area specifically susceptible for spreading the disease. As the plague spread, Venice responded by creating a network of plague quarantine stations on the islands of the lagoon. Pavglea Island became the most important of these ports by the 18th century. In 1485, Venice's ruler himself died from another wave of the disease, and this spurred the city to create several quarantine colonies on the isolated islands. When people in the area were suspected or showed symptoms of what could be the Black Death, they were taken away to Pavglea until either they recovered or died. On the nearby islands, the number of bodies started to overtake the ability to bury them. 
On one of the islands northeast of Pavglea, over 500 people a day used to die, and there was no time to take care of these burials. As for the sick, it was a hellish place. Three to four people had to share each bed. Often, the dying or the ones too sick to move or talk, they were presumed to be dead. They were just thrown on the pile of the dead plague victims. From the 16th century on, Pavglea housed plague victims. Most of these people never left and they were cremated or buried in mass graves. By 1777, Venice's Magistrate of Health turned Pavglea Island into its primary plague checkpoint. All ships sailing into Venice had to stop on the island to be inspected. If anyone on board showed any sign of illness, they were quarantined to this island, and many of them never ever left. Pavglea Island remained Venice's most important plague quarantine site until 1814. It was due to this that it started to be called the Island of Ghosts. But the island's history, it only gets darker from here. In 1922, Venetians transformed this island from a plague station to a mental institution. Soon afterwards, rumors started flying around Venice that a doctor at the hospital on the island was carrying out horrific experiments on his patients. He stopped one day abruptly when he fell from a bell tower on this island. Local lore says that this doctor was tormented by the ghosts on the island and this resulted in him losing his mind. It is said that he either jumped or was thrown to his death by the spirit stuck on the island. He too never left this island. The hospital closed its doors in 1868, leaving the island once again abandoned. Not surprisingly, stories of ghostly plague victims and abused psychiatric patients haunted Pavglea Island and continue to this day. With more than 160,000 people being left on the streets of the island to decompose before they were burnt or thrown into mass graves, absolutely nobody should be surprised here. It is said that even today, human bones can be found just below the surface of the soil, which is made up of 60% human ash. According to local legend, the patients of the asylum regularly reported that they would see strange shadows and they couldn't sleep at night due to the wailing of the suffering ghosts. They were not believed, and this resulted in them getting treated even worse. It was said that the patients were subjected to torture or even killed. Some of them, they got a punishment worse than death. These poor souls underwent a procedure called a lobotomy with hammers, chisels, and drills with no anesthesia and no sanitation. This resulted in them too getting stuck for eternity. When the mental asylum was permanently shut down, the island was once again abandoned to the ghosts. During the years, Pavglea lured in many curious paranormal researchers. In 2009, a television show called Ghost Adventure dedicated an episode to this island. Supposedly, a group of Americans went to the island to later be rescued by local firefighters. When they arrived, they found the Americans completely panicked and in a state of shock after their multiple experiences in the paranormal hotspot. It is said, to this day, you can hear voices, strange noises, and screams throughout the island. Many people have reported seeing multiple spirits of those who took their last breaths here. Researchers have also discovered something quite strange. 
This island has an odd electromagnetic field within the tire perimeter of this island, even though there's no source of electricity. Today, it is forbidden to step foot on this island without having official authorization of the municipality. There is no official records of the whole story of this island, but according to local lore, it is not a place that you want to hang out at since it's also known as the Island of No Return. But for some lucky buyer, that didn't matter. An Italian businessman purchased a 99-year lease for this island in 2014. The amount estimated to restore all the buildings to their former glamour is astronomical. But I have a question for you all. With a history like this, would anyone actually want to? When one thinks about going to prison, nobody thinks it's going to be a good time. It is not going to be pleasant, no matter what the facility is like or how supposedly enlightened the beliefs of those in charge are. One of the most famous prisons in the world believed that their methods of rehabilitation was actually therapeutic, but they were very, very wrong. Tasmania's Port Arthur initially opened as a timber station in 1830, but three years later, it was converted to a penal colony for some of the harshest British criminals. Located on the southern tip of the Tasmania Peninsula, this prison was considered to be inescapable. In 1843, Port Arthur decided to add additional prisons to the colony. Based on the ideas of philosopher and social reformer Jeremy Betham, the prisons were built in a way that the entire prison would be visible from a central guard station. The thought behind this was that prisoners would think that they're always in the line of sight of guards and they would always be on their best behavior. The thing was that even though each wing was clearly visible to the guards, the individual cells were not. The biggest difference between this prison and others of its time was the common use of corporal punishment. At other jails at this time, beatings were common. Food, it was used as a reward system and not necessarily as needed for human life. At Port Arthur, they decided to use what they called the silent system. Prisoners were forced to wear hoods when in the company of others. They were identified by a number and not by their names. They would spend their days in solitary confinement and were forced to stay silent. It is believed that this would give the prisoners time to reflect on their crimes and repent for what they have done. This was considered by them not only to be humane, but to be a major advancement in prisoner reformation. But instead of being reformed, many of these prisoners developed mental disorders after being trapped in the darkness and in the silence for days and weeks on end. The psychological damage for some became so bad that prisoners murdered other inmates just to get a death sentence. For them, death was the only escape from this isolation. For those who dreamed of escape, it was thought to be impossible. Located on a peninsula, this prison was completely surrounded by water. The only connection to the mainland was about 30 meters or 99 feet wide, and it was protected by soldiers, fences, traps, and dogs that were starved to make them even more aggressive. None of this stopped the inmates from trying to escape this hellhole. 
Now, one of the most interesting escapes was attempted by a man named George Hunt. He decided to disguise himself as a kangaroo by covering himself with a kangaroo pelt. Now, you see, it kind of worked, but not in the way that George had an advantage. You see, the guards were also kept on very meager rations. When they saw a kangaroo, they were overjoyed. They were going to eat. When the guards started to shoot at the kangaroo, George immediately threw the pelt off and gave up. He received 150 lashes as punishment, but he was very happy that he wasn't somebody's lunch. Now, Port Arthur has its own cemetery, which is known as the Isle of the Dead. Over 1,100 people are buried here, but there are only 180 grave markers showing the place where the prison guards, staff, military, and their families lie. The inmates who died here were shown as much respect in death as they got in life. They were buried in unmarked, multi-person graves. Now, this was more than just an adult prison at the site. It was also a boys' prison, and this was the first separate boys' prison in the British Empire that saw over 3,000 boys pass through its doors. The youngest of these was only nine years old. The first 60 boys brought to the colony in 1833 were given the job to build the prison as part of their punishment. This prison was well known for its stern discipline and very harsh punishment. Even though most of the boys sent here were jailed for offenses that were considered very minor, the conditions would eventually turn them into hardened criminals. An example of this happened in 1843 when an overseer was murdered by two boys that were under his guard. The Port Arthur colony was shut down in 1877, and devastating fires hit that island in 1895 and 1897 that helped speed up the process of this land turning into general residential land. Almost immediately after the colony closed, tourists started coming to the colony, and by the 1820s, a local tourist economy had established. It has been a popular tourist site since those times, and in 2010, Port Arthur was added to the World Heritage List. But Port Harbour is not only known for its prison colony. In 1996, Port Arthur became the site of one of the most deadliest shooting rampages in the world, and it resulted in Australia changing its gun laws. To this date, it's the worst massacre in modern Australia history that was committed by one person, and that person was a man named Martin Bryant. In 1992, Martin Bryant inherited $570,000 in property and assets by his friend, Helen Harvey. She left the 25-year-old her estate after passing away in a car accident. Martin decided to use this windfall to travel around the world and purchase himself gifts, and one of these was an AR-10 semi-automatic rifle that he found in a newspaper ad in Tasmania. During this time, Martin's father tried to purchase a bed and breakfast property, but it was purchased by Nolene and David Martin before Martin's father could pull the money together needed for this deal. Martin's father was very disappointed, and he often complained to his son about what he said was the couple's double dealing, which resulted in him losing out on the opportunity. He told his son how he even offered to buy Nolene and David a different property, but they refused. Martin's father told his son that he felt the couple deliberately purchased the property to cause harm to him and his family. In 1993, Martin's father committed suicide and Martin, he blamed Nolene and David. In late 1995, 
Martin himself became suicidal. He later told authorities that he had enough and he felt people were against him. He started to drink, and this behavior all escalated in the six months before the massacre. In March of 1996, Martin brought his AR-10 rifle to a gun shop for cleaning and repairs. While he was there, he started making inquiries about the AR-15 rifles that he's seen in other shops. At this time, non-handguns were not required to be registered in Tasmania. According to Martin, he started thinking about his plan for a few months before the event. He alleged that his motivation for the killings was Nolene and David refusing to sell his father the bed and breakfast, and that he also wanted to be considered notorious. From the second he was captured after the event, Martin demanded to know just how many people he killed, and when he was told, he was clearly impressed with the number of people he ended up killing that day. On the day of the massacre, Martin traveled to Port Arthur. He went to the bed and breakfast, and he walked inside, firing several shots. He then subdued David, gagged him, and stabbed him. He then killed Nolene before walking back outside. By chance, a random couple pulled into the parking lot of the bed and breakfast. They asked Martin if they could look at the accommodations, but Martin told them they couldn't since his parents were away and his girlfriend was inside. The couple thought Martin was really rude, and they got uncomfortable. They immediately left, and this saved their lives. Martin then drove past the Port Arthur historical site towards another property that was owned by David and Olene. This is where Martin ran into a man named Roger Larner, who he met about 15 years previously. Martin told Roger that he was surfing all day and that he bought a property called Fog Lodge, and now he wanted to buy cattle from him for the lodge. Martin made comments that he bought the land that used to be David and Olene's, and he asked if he could stay and visit him for a while. Roger agreed, but then Martin told him he was going to go visit somebody else first, and he would return later in the afternoon. Around 1.10 p.m., Martin went to the Port Arthur Historical Site. He parked near the water's edge, and he then was approached by a park security manager. The manager told him he had to park with the other cars since he was parking in a camper van area. Martin complied, and he moved his car. The security manager watched him leave his car with what appeared to be a sports bag and a video camera. He then left the parking lot, and he went back to work. Meanwhile, Martin went into the site's cafe, and he ordered some lunch. He ate on the balcony, and he attempted to start to have conversations with the people sitting at the other tables. He appeared to be nervous, and he kept looking back into the cafe and at his car in the parking lot. After finishing his meal, Martin put his bag down on a table and pulled out an AR-15 with a scope and a 30-round magazine attached. Martin pointed the gun at the people at the table beside him, and he started to shoot. He killed four people and injured another before a man helping at the cafe that day threw a serving tray at him after he turns towards his wife and child. The mother and the child were able to hide under the table. Martin then killed five more and injured seven before heading out towards the gift shop. He wasn't there to buy a souvenir. He killed five more people and injured four more. Now, it's not fully clear what happened next, but at some point, Martin stopped to reload his gun. He walked back into the restaurant and returned back to the gift shop. It is here where he killed and wounded several more. In total, Martin fired 29 shots, killed 20, and wounded 12 more at this point in our story. But this was not enough for Martin. He went outside towards the parking lot where the tour buses were located. When people in the parking lot heard gunfire, many ran and hid. Others, though, didn't understand what was happening and didn't know what to do. 
they stayed put along with others who believed that this was likely some sort of historical reenactment. What they didn't know was they were now targets. Martin moved towards the buses and he continued to shoot. He was able to kill two more and injure five before going back to his vehicle and getting a self-loading rifle. He then started shooting again, killing two more and injuring two. By this time, Martin had killed 26 people and injured 18. After causing all of this destruction, Martin got back into his car and drove off honking his horn and waving at his victims. As he head down the road, he saw a woman and her two small children running from this scene. Martin slowed his car and the woman thought, finally, somebody was going to help her. Martin told her to get down on her knees and he shot and killed her and her two children before abandoning them on the road. Martin then drove up to a toll booth and he pulled out his gun again. He killed four people and then he took his weapons and ammunition out of his car and put them in one of the victim's BMW. While doing this, Martin saw a car approaching the toll booth. He started shooting at this and the injured driver was able to escape. This man drove to a nearby service station to call the police. Meanwhile, Martin got into the stolen BMW and he drove off. His death count was now 33 and he injured 19 people. Martin then drove towards a service station and he cut off a Toyota Corolla that was trying to exit to a nearby freeway. Martin jumped out of the car with his rifle in hand. He tried to pull the driver out of the other car, but the driver jumped out. Martin grabbed the driver and pushed him towards the open trunk of the BMW. Martin locked the driver inside and he went back to the Corolla where the driver's girlfriend was. Martin shot and killed her. She was the 34th victim. Martin then decided to drive back to the bed and breakfast. On the way, he shot at several more vehicles and injured several more people. He then stopped the car after arriving back at the bed and breakfast. He let the man who he locked inside the car's trunk back out and handcuffed him to a staircase inside. He then walked back outside and set the house on fire. Police came and surrounded the house and Martin, who was now inside, started taunting them to come in and get them. Since the police thought his hostage was likely dead, they decided to wait it out. Eventually, Martin ran out of the house with his clothes on fire and he suffered burns on his back and buttocks. He was quickly arrested and taken to the hospital for treatment for his burns. It was later discovered that Martin's hostage died by either being shot either before or during that police standoff. His remains was discovered with those of David and Nolene. On top of all the dead from the prison, this area just lost another 35 people that day. With all this pain and suffering in one location, should anyone be surprised to hear that Port Arthur is considered to be one of Australia's most haunted locations? There are thousands of reports of people who have paranormal experiences in this area. Many people report seeing a blue lady who some believe is the ghost of a woman who married a local accountant and lived at the penal colony during the 1800s. She is described as being young and wearing a long blue-gray crinoline dress and a bonnet. She is most often seen peering out of one of the buildings. Local legend says that the blue lady and her baby died in childbirth and she stays in death in the building where she lost her baby. She's looking for her child. Other people report seeing the spirit of a young girl who fell down a staircase to her death in the Commandant's house. Many people report seeing the child lying at the bottom of the staircase where she died in a pool of blood. It looks like her arm is broken and twisted in a very unnatural position underneath her. She has a look of terror on her face before she disappears. 
One of the most common events that people report is the hearing of sounds of disembodied children laughing and playing. They're heard running up and down the stairs in the buildings on the site. It sounds like they're playing, and they also hear the singing of children's songs. In 2015, one of these children was supposedly caught on camera. A visitor taking a tour on site took pictures and then posted them to a Facebook page called Australian Hauntings. One of the photos shows what appears to be the spirit of a small boy lurking in one of the cells. Now, that actually isn't the only ghost photo from Port Arthur. For many who take pictures here, it is very common to see the images of ghost children peering out of windows of buildings. It's also extremely common to smell fresh blood and to see shadow figures. So, if you're a skeptic, perhaps a trip to Port Arthur will make you a believer. Thank you all for joining me today for our latest episode of Horrifying History. Have you been to places even scarier than you heard about today? Join us on Facebook at Horrifying History, on Instagram at Horrifying underscore History, and on Twitter at Horrifying H-I-S-T-1 and tell us all about them. I also wanted to say thank you for hitting that subscribe button for my podcast. With each subscribe button hit, you're allowing for more people to learn about this podcast. And when you hit that button, it automatically downloads our upcoming episodes on their day of release. It is a great way not to miss our next episode. The True Story of the Blue Fugates, a story about inbreeding. Feel free to reach out to me anytime at horrifyinghistory at outlook.com with any comments, questions, or story ideas. I love hearing from you guys. And if you like what you heard today, please consider giving us a five-star review, which helps other people hear about our show. Thank you all for listening again today. And until next time. <laughs>